Please open your Bibles to the 18th chapter of Luke. Luke chapter 18. This morning we're reading a smaller section, just three verses, and probably one of the most illustrated, and I fear sentimentalized and maybe even misunderstood passages in the gospel accounts. This is, of course, the passage where the crowds are bringing their babies to Jesus, and the disciples try to stop them, and Jesus corrects them and welcomes them and teaches about them. So let's begin our time by reading Luke 18, verses 15 to 17. And then we'll see what the Lord has for us. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to your word, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And as here you commend something about children, and that we must receive your kingdom as such, we pray that you would give us the grace, the faith, to receive your word, your kingdom, as your children. So Lord, um, give us eyes to see. Help us to hear this word for us. In Jesus' name, amen. The necessity of childlike faith. Now, this, this passage and similar ones, there's a parallel account in Mark. It's probably one of the most depicted ones I know. I see it most frequently in the cover of children's Bibles. You got, um, you've got Nordic European Jesus with his white dress sitting, and there's three or four kids on his lap, and they got rosy cheeks, and everyone's smiling. And that's wonderful. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that's what Luke would have us to see is going on here. If you remember, we've got to set the context of where we're at. Jesus has been teaching on the kingdom, which transitioned into teaching on those who will enter the kingdom. And we just saw last week the, the stark contrast between the Pharisee who was trusting in himself that he was good, he was righteous. God's work, yes, but he was, what he was counting on, what he was trusting on was his goodness, his accomplishments. And in contrast to that, the tax collector beat his breast and cried out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And we end that passage with verse 14. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. One who humbles himself will be exalted. And then we go right into this. No sign in Luke that there's a break in time or location. Now they were bringing even infants to him. that He might touch them. This passage breaks down into three points in the plot. Pretty straightforward. First, we have the crowds bringing the infants to Jesus and the disciples trying to run interference. Then we have Jesus welcoming them. And then Jesus gives a teaching about them. And we're looking at those three points. Let's just begin. The disciples try to block infants from coming to Christ. The disciples try to block infants from coming to Christ. And I think it's worth taking a moment to consider what we're to understand this to be. What do infants represent? And make no mistake, these are babies, newborns, infants. The same word used in verse 15 is used of, the John, of John the Baptist in utero. 
And it switches from verse 15 with infants to, as the ESV shows, children, now potentially a larger age gap in 16 and 17. But, but what the crowds are bringing are babies, newborns, relatively newborns, and they're bringing them. Notice they're not walking. They're being carried to Jesus. And what's going on there? And here is, is another point where we need to focus our study on Luke. A lot of the commentaries I read, because Mark has a parallel passage, in Mark, Jesus was blessing them. And not to say that that didn't take place, but Luke hasn't included that. That's not Luke's um, emphasis. So I'm, I want to go where Luke goes in this text. So I, I do believe Mark's accurate that Jesus at times blessed infants. But here, the focus is not on, on Jesus blessing them, but they were bringing them to him that he might touch them. So what's going on here? What, what are the crowds after? What is it the disciples are rejecting? And then how does Jesus' response help us understand that? And I think here's the point with the infants. We, can, we in our Western culture, um, have this crazy dichotomy where on the one hand, we're okay with killing infants. But once they're born, man, we think they're wonderful um, we think they can do no wrong. They're intrinsically good, children of the future. And so we can have this sort of sentimental, sentimentalized view of children that is in, in no way taking place in the first century. Um, children, here's your blank, infants possessed no social standing. And that's clearly the scale at which we're to look at them through. We end with everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him. And Luke's adding of even is, this is surprising. This is a new extreme. That they have no social standing. Back in, as far as I could tell, the little research, in the first century Roman world, infant mortality rates were somewhere between 25% and 30%, which meant somewhere between one in four and one in three children was not going to reach adulthood. And so these, these kids could not contribute, they, they didn't work, they didn't, I mean, obviously the parents loved their own individual kids, but as the community regarded children, they, they had no social worth. They were the, the least prestigious, they have no power. And so we're meant to view them not as a symbol of innocence and of joy, but rather of littleness, of need, of poverty. And it's in that sense, after the tax collector, that Luke introduces. And notice where we go next, the rich young ruler. We're going to see Jesus welcome infants, and the rich young ruler is going to go away, sorry. That's the contrast, the great and the powerful, the weak and the needy. And so we're meant to view this as these infants are coming, and they're taking up the Messiah's time. And that's what the disciples aren't liking. The infants possess no social standing. They sought, point two, for some blessing from him. Now, if we remove the notion from Mark of Jesus blessing children, what might Luke suggest as a reason why these parents might want their children to come and for Jesus to touch them? Turn back to Luke 6. I think he gives us the answer. Um, you remember, Jesus and his touch was seen repeatedly through the earlier chapters of Luke, whether it was touching the leper. And Jesus doesn't become unclean. The leper becomes clean. The woman with the flow of blood who touched Jesus and was healed. Jesus touching not one but two dead bodies and raising them to life. Luke has had a tremendous emphasis on the touch and what it accomplishes of the Son of God. And nowhere is that seen more clearly, and the crowds get it. They pick up on it. Verse 19 of chapter 6, all the crowds sought to touch him for power 
came out from him, healed them all. So I think we're simply to understand this is not only now are all the crowds trying to touch him, but at every level and strata, this is going on. So you can imagine younger and younger. And if you're a parent and you know that one out of three, one out of four children die in childhood, well, who knows what will happen with the Messiah this, if this prophet touches them. It'll confer some blessing, some help. So in the same way that all the crowds were seeking to touch Jesus because power was going out from him, there was healings taking place, they're also trying to bring in the, the infants and the newborns to him. Touch, touch my little boy. Touch my, she's got a sniffle. Touch. That, that's what's going on. They're seeking some blessing from him, just as everyone else was. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. The logic here in the text is this. They believe the infants were unworthy of Jesus' time. Jesus is an important person. They've come to believe he's the Christ, the Messiah of God. He's on his way to Jerusalem. We know that. Luke's repeated that. He's, he's going to die. He has work to do. He doesn't have time for babies. At least so the disciples think. Especially, perhaps, they can even see the rich young ruler waiting in the wings. I mean, man, if we're going to make time for somebody, make time for these guys. I mean, if the rich young ruler got on board, the whole synagogue might turn with him. He's got a lot of influence. So the disciples believe the infants were unworthy of Jesus' time. And, and this is proof, then, that they've ignored Jesus' teaching on these things. Turn, turn back to Luke 9 again. He may still be there, even. There's a similar teaching here. And again, I think we'll see that the axis on looking at children is one of weakness and lowliness. And in Luke chapter 9, Jesus has come down from the mountain. He's met with God. Moses and Elijah were there. He's, they talked about his death. And the disciples were unable to cast the demon out of a boy, which naturally leads them to argue who's the greatest. You know, when your ego gets a blow, the way you fight back against your ego is you will, well, at least I'm better than you. So verse 46, an argument arose among them, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him to his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he is least among you all as the one who is great. So what has Jesus just taught them? Look, you're looking at power all the wrong way. You're looking at power as that which excludes, that which elevates you and puts you in a, in a cut above the rest. No, my great ones are those who are humble enough to interact with and welcome children. The greatest in my kingdom has time for kids, in other words. He's not too important to not receive this child. He's already taught them this. In fact, go back to Luke 18 now. The very last closing um, truism of verse 14 Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. The disciples have not picked up on this, and it's clear in the Gospels. They're still trying to grapple with Jesus' topsy-turvy, upside-down kingdom, where to be low is to be high. They're still bringing in um, earthly, human understandings of privilege, rank, importance. And so they're, they're stopping these kids. Don't waste the Messiah's time. Get your kids away from it. It's not like they're to learn from his teaching after all. Come on. Well, how does Jesus respond? We see that our Savior has a very, very different heart than in the disciples do at this point. 
Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So, Jesus calls them. The them here is the disciples, because he calls them and says two things. Let the children, don't hinder them. So he calls the disciples to him and tells them in no uncertain terms, stop blocking these kids. Let them come. The disciples must allow them to come to Jesus. And just pause here and consider the humility, the compassion, the hospitality of our Savior. This is God of very God. Now, we look at strata, and we think, you know, a rich young ruler might be someone powerful, and a baby's nobody. But, but in God's estimation, I was talking to Pastor Daniel this week, and all of Jesus' interactions with everyone throughout the Gospels is, is a bigger gap than you and me interacting with babies, isn't it? And Jesus had time for all sorts of people, whether it's the sinful woman who came in and washed his feet, whether it's a woman who'd had a flow of blood for 12 years, whether it was a Roman centurion. In fact, one of the, the most striking examples is in uh, chapter 9. Jesus wants to finally get away with his disciples. He goes out to a desolate place with them, but the crowd hears of it. Now listen to this. Okay, chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. No, not chapter 9, 46 through 50. Chapter 9, 10 through 12. There we go. On their return, the apostles told him all they'd done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethesda. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them. They interrupted Jesus' retreat, and he welcomes them. And he spends his entire day with them. So much so that in verse 12, now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go to the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodgings and get provisions, for we are here in the desolate place. And then Jesus feeds them. We've seen again and again and again and again Jesus' heart and compassion for all types of people, all comers, and he makes time for them. Um, earlier, he had a very long day. Remember the, uh, the encounter where he first he fell asleep in the boat, calms the storm, goes across, deals with the demoniac, gets back in the boat, goes across the sea, and immediately a crowd meets him, and Jairus' daughter is dying, and he goes, he's, he's just filling up his time ministering to people. He's compassionate, he's humble, he's hospitable, and here Jesus has time for children. He's not too good, he's not above that, and this is a wonderful thing of our Savior, a wonderful thing of our Savior. In fact, there's an interesting um, passage in Ezekiel 16, God himself claims that Israel's children are his children. There's a, there's a remarkable respect that these are Jesus' children, in a sense. Listen to this. God rebuking Israel for the horrific practice of sacrificing their children. You took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? When Jesus has time for children, God views them, these kids that he's blessing us with, they're his children. We're stewards and then he gives his disciples a further reason why this is so. Not only because in Jesus' economy and kingdom, rank and authority and greatness does not now mean you're excluded from having to rub elbows with the hoi polloi, but for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now we're back to talking about the kingdom. You remember that whole discussion started back in 722, 
when the Pharisees asked him about when the kingdom would come. And so now we're back to the kingdom. And what we're seeing is that Jesus is going to use these children as examples, teaching points about kingdom candidates, people who may or may not enter the kingdom. So what do we get from this? For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Well, the first point is this. Children have equal access to Jesus' blessings. Children have equal access to Jesus' blessings. Just as Jesus would heal all the people who came to him, just as Jesus let the people crowd in and touch him, so children as well have access to this blessing. He's, he's not an adult-only savior. Um, children have equal access to Jesus' blessing, but more to the point, and I think the primary issue here is this, children are a perfect illustration of kingdom citizens. Children are a perfect illustration of kingdom citizens. Now, it's important here to look at the grammar and understand what he says and what he does not say. Jesus does not say, to these children belongs the kingdom of God. If he did, then we'd have to be discussing infant salvation or infant innocence. He doesn't say that. He says, for to such people like this, belongs the kingdom of God. And then in verse 17, it makes it clear that he's using them as an illustration. For truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So now Jesus turns and uses these babies, these infants, as a perfect illustration of kingdom citizens. And it's another surprising reversal. The last one was the Pharisee and the tax collector, the religious, righteous, the good guy, He's the one leaving his prayer headed to hell. And it's the tax collector beating on his breast, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, who goes home justified. And here, babies, the disciples are too proud to have come to Jesus. Well, actually, they're the type of people, and people like them are going to be inhabitants of the kingdom. Why is that? And again, we've got to strip away our, our Western sentimentalized view. It is not for their virtue. It's not because children represent innocence, and it's not because children have limitless potential, and it's not because children are cute. They, these things are true, I mean, to some degree. But it's not for their virtue, but for their deficit. It's for what they lack. It's what they don't have. That's why they're wonderful illustrations of the people who will enter and inherit the kingdom of God. They are without strength, power. They are without standing or social rank. They are without defense. They're without sophistication. They're without wisdom, pretense, knowledge, resources, dignity, or recourse. If we don't change our baby, our baby's not changed. If we don't feed our baby, our baby is not fed. If we don't clothe our baby, our baby's not clothed. You get it? Our baby contributes nothing to our family. And we love our children, but they're not chipping in, doing chores. They're completely passive, helpless, needy. That's why they're a perfect illustration of those who will receive the kingdom of God. Turn, turn to Ezekiel 16. I want to prove this point to you. The children are viewed in this sense as a picture of weakness, helplessness, objects of pity. 
The Lord God is going to speak a word to Israel, describing how he founded Israel. But I think in a very real sense, what we're about to read is also, if you're a Christian, how you got saved. It's also to verify the notion of, to some cultures and some peoples, how little children were valued. Ezekiel 16, verse 1, again the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, thus says the Lord God to to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites, your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite, and as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. We know that in ancient Rome and Greece, that practice was done. Um, If you didn't want the child, if it wasn't male, for whatever reason, they'd just leave the children out to die of exposure. And you're getting the picture here. This is children are viewed as, and here's God's heart for the weak. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. And I said to you in your blood, live. You and I were helpless, powerless. This is how God saved us. He saw us in our distress. He didn't see our strength. He didn't see our goodness. He didn't see our potential. His compassion reached out to us. Now, children are a perfect illustration of kingdom citizens, not for their virtue, but for their deficits. And that's where Jesus goes now in the final verse, verse 17. Unpacking this even further, what does he mean? The such belong the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And here Jesus plainly and clearly commends the necessity of childlike faith. The necessity of childlike faith. Now I want to pause for a moment and consider what Jesus does not say. And this is one of the reasons why I've tried to stress the way we're to view these children, what attributes we're supposed to be focusing on as we consider them coming to Jesus, and it's this. Jesus is not commending childish faith. Jesus is not commending childish faith. Sometimes we get from this the notion, well, since Jesus welcomed these children, the gospel's got to be easy enough for a two-year-old to believe. First of all, these are newborn infants. It doesn't matter how simple your message is, they're not going to comprehend it. But that's not the point. The point is not become like a child and have this little faith that this child has. No, become weak and helpless and needy and recognize it. That's how you become like a child. This isn't about childish faith. And that's where we can run into the sort of the sentimentalism. Your your kid does a coloring picture. Look how much my kid loves Jesus. Maybe that's not what's going on here, though. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is not commending a sort of simplistic Cut the doctrine aside. You've been, you've been going through Luke. Jesus has emphasized doctrinal teaching, hasn't he? Jesus has some hard things to say. Whoever does not pick up his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And you have to become like a child. Jesus doesn't view those messages as mutually exclusive. Because what he's commending and commanding in us when he calls us to become like a child is not, don't think critically, deeply, 
Don't believe earnestly. He's not saying that at all. We'll see what he's saying in a moment, but understand this is not the commendation of childish faith, but childlike faith. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, we are told, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Okay? So if that's not what it means, what does it mean? Okay? It means this. You and I must humble Ourselves, You must humble yourself as a child before God. And when you look at it that way, I think it fits perfectly in this section. The Pharisee was unwilling to let go of his pride. I am a good guy, the Pharisee says. I've, I've fasted and I've given and I haven't cheated on my wife and I haven't robbed people. That's worth something. He's, he's not an infant. He's bringing something to the table. Tax collector on their hand, just beating his breast. The whole emphasis here in this section is on the, the humility and the helplessness and the empty-handedness with which those who would enter the kingdom must come. The rich young ruler comes, and I've kept all these commandments for my youth. What last thing must I do? Sell all you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. And he goes away sad. But here, infants are likened to those who will receive the kingdom of God. Don't, don't miss this. We're still acting out. We're still being shown. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. One who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the point. Become a child in that sense, which means at least three things. One, recognize your weakness and helplessness. Recognize your weakness and your helplessness. You are not strong. You are not powerful. You are a vapor, a, a mist that appears for, for a little while and is gone. You're like dew on the grass, the sun dries up. You're like a flower or a weed that springs for a day and when the sun comes down, it wilts. That is what you and I are like. We, we don't have power. We can't add a single hair to our head. And all these things that we think we can do fool us into thinking we have other recourses than the living God. No, we're like the widow who has nowhere else to turn, has no other hope of help than going to the throne of God's court and calling on the judge of the universe for help. Recognize your weakness and recognize your helplessness. You and I are like the tax collector who has no recourse, no argument, but please have mercy. The Pharisees rehearsing to God his accomplishments, his good things. The Pharisee is quite happy to, to relate at length on the good things he has done. And he gives God the credit. But that's his identity. He doesn't, he's not viewing himself as a child. He's viewing himself as good, as, as able to do things. Tax collector beats his breast, moaning his condition, crying out for mercy. If you want to enter Christ's kingdom... If you want to be one of his subjects, if you want to be forgiven, you need to recognize that you are weak and you are helpless. That unless God walks by and sees you too in your blood and says, live, you have no hope. Second, confess your guilt and lack of moral worth. Confess your guilt and lack of moral worth. This goes hand in hand with the last point. And you remember back in 1710... Jesus taught this truth to his disciples. Because 
I think sometimes we can think we enter Christianity by recognizing our helplessness, and we enter Christianity, we become Christians by recognizing our bankruptcy and worthlessness, but then we progress on to become not infants anymore in that sense, but we start doing stuff and we start earning stuff, and Jesus tells his disciples clearly in verse 7 of 17, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, Come at once, recline at table. Will not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will drink. Does he thank the servant because he has done what was commanded him? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy slaves. We've only done our duty. Even if you are able to do everything that God commands you to do, do you suddenly leave the, the powerless category? Do you leave the, 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 this, this child, helpless, dependent category? No, you do not. We are but worthless slaves. We've only done our duty. Recognize your guilt and your lack of moral worth. Recognize that you did not bring any righteousness to the table, and you still are not bringing any righteousness to the table that somehow makes God indebted to you. Yes, through his spirit, he works out the fruit of righteousness in our lives. Yes, that is to his praise and glory. Yes, it is encouraging. Yes, I would say it is even necessary for Christians. But none of that gives us a ground or a standing, and none of that changes our absolutely dependent and helpless relationship with God, which is the wonderful thing. He's the fountain that overflows, and we receive we're never the ones overflowing and benefiting him. From start to finish, we are recipients of grace. We are recipients of grace. This brings us to the last point. If you recognize your weakness and helpless, if you will confess your guilt and lack of moral worth and your sin and all the things that you've done that offend him, will you then entrust yourself to God and depend on him? Entrust yourself to God and depend on him. Turn back to Luke 11. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he taught them to pray as children of God. And all of the language and all of the logic for how we ought to pray assumes that dependent relationship. And so part of what it means to be humble yourself to the point of a child and enter Christ's kingdom, is to continue to depend on him. My children depend on me. They're looking to me for food. They're looking to me for, for, for shelter. When they have a bad dream, they're crying out to me or my wife, not the neighbor. To become someone's child is to depend wholly on them. Will you depend wholly on God? Or will you depend on other things? And trust yourself to God. So here, here's how Jesus taught the disciples to pray. Verse 2, he said to them, When you pray, pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. Every day, we're calling out to our Father for the things we need, for the bread we need to eat. Jump down a little further. Um, after he gives the example of the friend... Verse 9, I tell you, ask, 
and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. For what father among you, the son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I'm supposed to pray and come before God's throne like a child saying, I need a piece of food. I need an egg. I need some fish. And I'm supposed to trust that my heavenly Father loves me and doesn't give me bad gifts. And so even if it kind of looks like a scorpion, he expects me to take a bite. Even if it kind of looks like a rock, he's my dad. He wouldn't give me a rock. Okay, I'll take a bite. That's what it means to be God's child. That's what it means to humble yourself like this, to become like a child. Now, teenagers might start questioning, like, what is this? But the, the, the young kids, they just take it, man. They just take it, don't they? Becoming like a child is not about something fanciful and light and simplistic and whimsical and sentimental. Now, childlike faith terrifies me. You think about it. If mom or dad tells the kids something, that's it, right? So you tell mom and dad there's a magical fairy who wants their teeth and will give them money for it. The kid goes, okay. Right? Does that make any sense? But the mom and dad say it, and the kid's like, okay, here's my teeth. Puts it in the bag. You tell them there's a confused rabbit hiding eggs with candy. Okay. Right? Because mom and dad said it. That settles it. Let me me give you a a further example. I asked my son if I could tell this example this morning. I think this is more what it means to be a child and liken yourself and humble yourself to a child. It's that dependence and trust, even in fear and suffering, and a parent and a father who loves you. So Abner um, had to have a couple cavities done, and he'd had that before. So he went in the second time knowing what he was in for. And from a distance, conceptually, he was okay with it, right? And I, I hate needles. I hate needles. So my son gets it honestly from me. But we're in there, and Dr. Jake Hopper um, is getting ready, and, and Abner sees the needle come out. And he does exactly what I would do. He kind of recoils, and he looks to me. He doesn't freak out and like you know, have a meltdown, but tears are in his eyes. And, Daddy, I don't want to do it. I'm scared. I don't want to do it, Daddy, you know? So Jake steps out for me. I talk to Abner, and I hold his hand, and I say, Son, this, this needs to happen. This needs to happen. I can't fully explain to you all of it. I mean, that's one approach. You could try to bring the charts out, and here's the tooth decay, and here's your gums. But that's not the route we went. Here's the route we went. Abner, do you trust that I love you? Are you afraid that I mean evil for you? Are you afraid that somehow this is a plot to get you? No, no. And you recognize that God has put mommy and me here to look over you, and you're to trust us even when you don't understand. You're to obey us even when you're afraid. Yeah. Well, I'm going to stand right by here, and I'm not going to let go of your hand. I'm going to hold on. And and you're to be scared, and that's okay. You can cry. That's okay. But you need to hold still. You need to let Dr. Jake do his work. You need to let him deal with your teeth. And I'll be here, and I'll comfort you. You're willing to try that. And he looked really scared, and he said, okay. And we got through it. And, he, and he, he was scared, but he trusted his father. That's what it means to humble yourself like a child. So when God isn't doing what you think he should be doing, you don't show up with your like, well, actually, we've done some research, God, and um, 
we've noticed some very concerning things going on. That we're, and we trust you've got a good explanation for them, God, but we were kind of hoping that you could answer some of these. <laughs> that's not a child. That's an attorney. <laughs> right? So, so I want you to get this. We're, we're taking our time because I want you to get and replace some of these notions you've imported of childlike faith with what's really going on here. You can, you can come with nothing, and Jesus welcomes you. You can be a nobody, and Jesus says, come on in. But we see again and again the people who think they're somebody, the people who think they have wisdom, the people who think they're good and righteous, the people who think they deserve something. They're the ones who get shut out again and again and again and again. And the nothings and the nobodies and the tax collectors and the sinners, they keep coming on in. And Jesus takes one of these kids and says, points to them, such as them belongs the kingdom of God, For whoever, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. If you can't get yourself to this place, you're going to hell. That's what he says. That's the Jeremy translation. Because what does it mean to not enter Christ's kingdom? There's no third place you're going to. So you need to entrust yourself to God and be willing to depend on him, to act like his child. That, again, is the logic of the rest of Scripture. So 1 Peter 2.2 says this, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, the word that by it may grow up into salvation. Do you know how often newborn infants want to eat milk? It's not once a week on Sunday morning, I'll tell you that much. My wife got woken up multiple times last night. And Talith is not even a newborn. And this is the model. We don't move past this. This isn't how you start, then you grow up and you become a knight of the realm. The Christian life is and always will be a child depending upon a heavenly father who is good and kind. And so Jesus is teaching them and he's teaching us the importance of humility that even if you think you've accomplished something, even if you have done something, even if God's spirit through you has done some great things, praise God, you're still just an unworthy servant. You don't suddenly have chips that you get to spend. And when you're tempted to question God and his wisdom and what he's allowing into your life, that's not childlike. No, we trust our heavenly father. He cares for us. We receive all these blessings We don't need anything. We don't need strength. You don't need power. You don't need standing. You don't need sophistication, your own wisdom, your own knowledge, your own resources. He supplies it all. But you do need to humble yourself and recognize that's who and what you are. And and as you start to get some of this world's money, money is a big one coming next. That's the next one. It'll start to trick you into thinking you are somebody. Enough people in this world tell you you're somebody, treat you with respect, you'll start to believe it. The fight for us is to recognize this is how we enter and this is how we stay in relationship to God. We get to call on him as Father. He gives us a spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. And again and again and again, the challenge in the Christian life is will we continue to humble ourselves or will we act like we're something and be proud and God will, make no mistake, knock us down. He disciplines his children. That's another part about being a child, isn't it? Father disciplines those whom he loves. How do you feel about God's discipline in your life? Do you throw a tantrum? Do you recognize it's painful, but it's for your good? 
I'm going to call the worship team up now as we prepare to sing our closing song. And It's a perfect pick. This upside-down nature, everything in us wants to strive for rights and for power and for not humility. And yet, down at God's throne is the most high place. I'd ask you to stand as we sing.